is Kubrick's universe. It's Kubrick's Universe, the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Hey, and welcome once again to Kubrick's Universe. Today's guest is Professor Jeremy Shanyavsky, who is the editor of the new book, After Kubrick, A Filmmaker's Legacy, published by Bloomsbury and released on February 20th, 2020. Jeremy received a PhD from Yale University and is currently a professor of film at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, or as we who've lived in the Pioneer Valley call it, UMass Amherst. He is interviewed by our regular Kubrick's Universe contributor, Mark Lentz. So here you go, and take it away, Marco. Thanks very much, Jason. So, Jeremy, I was thrilled when in your book's introduction, you were listing some of Kubrick's heir parents, uh, like Darren Aronofsky, the Coen brothers, Jonathan Glazer. They're already favorites of mine. You lead off with two quotes. We're all children of Kubrick, aren't we? Is there anything you can do that he hasn't done? Paul Thomas Anderson. And the stars look very different today. David Bowie. After that, you talk about Bowie's space oddity being a response to 2001. And afterwards, quote from the title song of his last album, Black Star. Something Something happened happened on the day he died. Spirit rose a meter and stepped aside. Somebody else took his place and bravely cried, I'm a black star. I'm a black star. And then you continue. In many ways, these words also express the feeling that many aspiring artists, filmmakers, or simply regular film fans felt upon learning of Kubrick's death on March 7, 1999. A bright star in the firmament of cinema had gone out, but its light kept on reaching the world. So if I could extend that analogy, when certain stars die, they first turn into a supernova, and then they collapse back down and become a neutron star, which has an intense gravitational pull. And also in the process of being created, uh, it expels brand new elements, which then become the building blocks of the planets and all the life on the planets. Could we say that Kubrick now exerts that same intense pull on his heirs and that he created a new element, let's call it Kubrickium, that they are building new work with? Uh, Well, first of all, I I thank you for this lovely, uh, for picking up on that um, analogy and uh, 
Uh, yes, David Bowie obviously, you know, got his first hit with Space Oddity, which was, uh, I mean, evidently uh, uh, one of the first big references in popular culture to to Kubrick's work. And then Black Star, indeed, re, you know, re, you have some resurfacing themes of the space, um, you know, as, as a space cosmonaut uh, there on the planet lying lifeless. So I think that there's Kubrick played a, a role in um, in in Bowie's uh, work, no doubt. And there's other there's other uh, elements that that can be um, found in the book, including the the music that um, Bowie used during his uh, Ziggy Stardust uh, tour. There was music from Wendy Carlos's music for Clockwork Orange used there uh, in the in the preparation for the for the show, and um, he uses some of the Natsat from Anthony Burgess' Clockwork Orange as well in in some of the late songs. So so there's a lot of things. There's um, ashes to ashes, which is so, so sort of a, uh, you know, going back to space oddities, main character, major Tom. And I think that a lot of people, not only just Bowie, a lot, a lot of artists were, uh, influenced by Kubrick because it was hard to not be influenced by him. If you were in that zone of the, you know, of the, wherever that uh, star shone, it was hard to ignore it. Now, a lot of artists were also not in the same galaxy and uh as it were and and then they don't want to look at the star and i can tell you that a lot of uh artists do not like kubrick at all a lot of uh, people do not like kubrick films at all they they find them uh harsh they found them homophobic they found them uh, misogynistic and uh we may agree or we may not agree uh i think that people have a right to have their own sensitivity and they may not want to have anything to do with the star now the star does have a pool after its uh, death, right? I mean, it, it, the gravitational pool exists, and um, it's hard to ignore Kubrick, and it and it became even harder to ignore him after his death because there was such a uh, a strong commercial uh, marketing uh, event going around that uh, the re-release of two thousand one, the the film by Ian Harlan, The Life in Picture, the, of course the exhibition, uh, and and all these albums and books uh, and the imagery. So I think that indeed, maybe, I think it's fair to say that after Kubrick's death, his, his, um, his gravitational pull of that dead star became stronger. Um, now for Kubrickium, uh, I like that, but Kubrickium can be kryptonite to some people. There's, um, I can tell you certain, certain artists who, who really do not want to have anything to do with it and, uh, including a lot of female filmmakers that I know. And, you know, because I ask them, because that's, that's definitely, it's definitely a very masculine filmmaker and, and the representations that he has are not, not always, uh, to the liking of, of a lot of female filmmakers, you know, the, the, the fixation with female breasts and things like that, uh, among many other things. And yeah, they don't want to have anything to do with Kubrickium and that's fine. That's fine because we, you know, we don't want to idolize Kubrick. We, we certainly want to appreciate the incredible achievements of his films, uh, as, as works of art. And there's, I think, that's that's not disputable. I think that is just a fact that these these films are incredible works of of cinematic art. But uh, in terms of how the Kubrickium element uh, goes into the DNA of of other films, well, then some some of them can be very well uh, you know weeded out or like take an anti Kubrickium you know antibiotic or something. And those filmmakers who have been clearly as, you know, like using Kubrickium, uh, from an early age and maybe, you know, even drinking it with their mother's milk, who knows? Uh, I think that their films would be extremely different. I cannot imagine, I cannot imagine Gaspar Noé without the 2001 experience. I cannot imagine, uh, Jonathan Glazer without the, the same. Uh, it's hard to imagine Paul Thomas Anderson without the other Kubrick films in there. I mean, try to imagine. There will be blood without all the references to Kubrick. The, 
maybe it would be a better film. I don't know, but it would be a very different film for sure. And it might not have the same epic breath to it that, that is very Kubrickian in essence. Uh, and, you know, and, and all the other filmmakers that we discuss in, in the book, uh, even, even those filmmakers who do it in a more subtle way, like the Cohen brothers, we, uh, we, uh, we may not find the same spirit if they hadn't been inspired by, as Rodney Hill explains in the book, his uh, spirit of independence, of his philosophical approach, his Jewish humor, all these elements are very important in Kubrick and that the Cohen brothers were heirs to, if you will, uh, after, after his death. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a great analogy. I really like this idea of, of this, this, uh, you know, dead star becoming a black hole and, and pulling things in and, and doing so stronger after, after the death. But for how much longer? That, that's the question. Uh, how much longer is after, you know, after the, the closest family members, uh, of Stanley Kubrick who, who knew him so well and who had at heart to, um, to make his legacy last when, when they will be no longer with us, what's going to happen? Uh, you know, who's going to manage this incredible archive where the money is going to come from? Um, certainly Warner Brothers has already started to sell parcels of, of Kubrick's legacy, the way that you find the Overlook Hotel, uh, recycled in more or less tasteless ways in, um, in uh, Ready Player One by Spielberg or in Dr. Sleep by, uh, I'm sorry, I forget the name of this insignificant filmmaker, but, um, it's, it's just, it's just very, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's on the one hand, it's disturbing because you're just like, wow, you know, like he certainly would not have agreed to this and he's only been dead for 20 years and yet they're already doing it. Um, at the same time, you, we have to look at it from a, from a, uh, you know, no, nothing sacred perspective and say, you know, this is empowering, you know, like Kubrick gave something to the world, uh, and, you know, he did it for himself, but he did it for his fans as well. And we can use that and it can be used in a variety of ways. And that's really wonderful that you, you know, you, you feel like, you know, it's, it's not, it's not hallowed ground. You, it's for us, you know, it's for everybody. And, and that's where new elements filled with Kubrickium, uh, are going to come out of and and that's that's a very good thing because that means that he's now entering another level in in art history in in the history of human civilization he now some you know at some point people will not even be aware that they are quoting kubrick but he will be there you know it's like some people picking up on on certain harmonies of bach in their music not even being aware that that's what they were doing so yeah i mean i i think it's rather a good development uh better than than uh than just you know looking at kubrick through a glass pane in a in a showcase and being like you know this is sacred you can just only look at it and pray to it but we cannot really do anything with it um on the other hand it's it's a little bit dangerous because um you know watch who you entrust these things to uh because if if they turn it to things that are you know you can turn things into pastiche and it can be very amusing you can make things that are very very good that are disrespectful irreverent a little bit iconoclastic that is just fine i think but you have to be careful with things that get just tasteless and garish because um then then people might get confused and and i think that you know if it's an in, in isolated event that's fine but if it starts to becoming a regular recurrent event, then you, you may lose the, what made the original interesting. And that's when you fall into just outright bland kitsch. Uh, and I, I think that, that Kubrick knew how to play with kitsch. And I think he had, he was very keenly aware of what, um, reproduction imitation meant. Uh, but I think that he was always very aware of it. And, and when the people are not aware of it, then it just becomes this unaware kitsch, which is, dangerous because it waters down the the source text and the original ideas. Let's start going through the book, if we can, uh, to give people an idea of what's in it. And uh, 
Jeremy, would you be able to kind of just walk us through the chapters and just give a little idea of that? of what each is about. I will do this very gladly since this is the purpose of the show <laughs> today <laughs> as far as I'm concerned and thank you so much for having me and thank you so much for for you know allowing me to talk about the book. The the book starts with a rather uh comprehensive introduction which does at the same time um you know cover all the chapters and talk about these issues some of which we just talked about. And then the first chapter of the book is by the late Thomas Elsasser who unfortunately passed away in, in December. And that is an updating of a piece that he did in 2004 when the first exhibition happened in uh, in Frankfurt, uh, so the, the first Kubrick exhibition. And it's a wonderful chapter that, you know, is really one of the big, like, important texts written in English about Kubrick, in which Alsacer shows how Kubrick was a filmmaker of the extremes and also a filmmaker that was a little bit um, off in terms of the temporality that he found himself in, in terms of how he tackled genres, how they came a little bit above, uh, before the crest of the wave or a little bit after. And um, and then I was I asked Thomas and I said, uh, it would be wonderful if we could update this piece that came out 15 years ago and talk about those filmmakers that are influenced by him. Because at the time, when he wrote in 2004, he only mentioned uh, Quentin Tarantino, uh, I think that was it, and Lars von Trier. And so I said, you know, there's all these other people. And we just, we talked about it. We had a great exchange over it uh, last summer. And um, and he, you know, he penned another 2,000 words for the piece. And I think it's one of the important texts on Kubrick in English, no doubt. Very definitive uh, and uh, I just, I'm very sad that Thomas, who was really looking forward to reading the introduction of the book, uh, couldn't do that. Um, the second chapter is by Nathan Abrams, who you had as your guest here with Robert Kolker some, um, uh, some uh, weeks ago. And uh, Nathan, as you know, has this wonderful book called um, Stanley Kubrick, New York Jewish Intellectual. It's not his only book about Kubrick, but it's one of them. And I asked him to talk about Jewish filmmakers influenced by Kubrick. And there he wrote, writes about Mike Lee. He writes about David Mamet. He writes about uh, Darren Aronofsky. And he writes about the Cohen brothers, among other people. He also writes briefly about Jonathan Glazer, but he doesn't talk so much about the Glazer because he considers that the, the aforementioned filmmakers have this Talmudic approach. The, the, the way they work with Kubrick and Kubrick text is in essence Talmudic. And he thinks that Glazer uh, would be Jewish, of course, but not uh, Talmudic in, in practice, in method. Um, it's, a, it's a terrific uh, piece and a terrific companion to Nathan's book, um, Stanley Kubrick, New York Jewish Intellectual, which I, I think is really, you know, up there in terms of, of research about Kubrick and in terms of insight into a very important element of Kubrick's life and career and, and, and um, religion, obviously, even if he was not religious. Uh, he was culturally Jewish and, uh, and that's an element that cannot be overlooked. So I'm very happy that we have that chapter. The third chapter is by Professor Rodney Hill from Hofstra University, and it's about the Cohen brothers. And it's, it's a wonderful investigation of the spirit of independence, the spirit, the philosophical spirit that connects Kubrick and the Cohen brothers. And it's, it's, I think, one of the most stimulating, um, chapters because it really shows you how even in filmmakers who are not necessarily readily associated with Kubrick, you can find that the connection is very strong indeed, almost almost like, you know, father and sons. Um, so a uh, beautiful piece. And also uh, Rodney points to quotes that are there for fans to recognize, but are not in your face, if you see what I mean, in, uh, in the Coen Brothers films, in Raising Arizona, among other places uh, in their filmography. 
you posted an article for us to read and it had some pictures such as the uh, bathroom yes. from Raising Arizona. Are there pictures in your book? Yes, yes, there are pictures in the book. It's, you know, obviously the pictures are in black and white, but you will find these pictures to back up the analysis. And uh, uh, Rodney's actually chapter features most picture, pictures because it's a very important element of, of, of his analysis. I also just remembered uh, that in your introduction, you mentioned that Ridley Scott loved the reflection of the leopard's eyes with the front projection. And that's replicated in Blade Runner. I had never heard that. Yes, yes, I, I, that's my that's my find. Um, yes, uh, Ridley Scott is obviously the the first uh, major uh, Hollywood. You know, he was British, but Hollywood you know, British filmmaker working in Hollywood uh, to make uh, references to Kubrick. And if you watch his films closely, and I only just you know I I picked Blade Runner because it may be his most famous film or maybe his most cult. Uh, film, but really, uh, Scott's films are filled with references to Kubrick. There is the Duelist is obviously filled with uh, references to Barry Lyndon, uh, and and I, I like the idea that there might be a a, a a a a playful dialogue between Kubrick and Scott because in the Duelist you have that scene when they're in Russia, you know, uh, Karadine and Keitel, and and they find those French soldiers frozen in the snow. And, 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 you know, it, it's very, very similar to the ending of The Shining with Jack in the Labyrinth. And, uh, I, you know, that, that doesn't come, you know, certainly doesn't come from Stephen King's novel. So I felt, what if Kubrick, who watched so many films in preparation for The Shining, actually said, oh, I like this idea. I'm going to freeze somebody in the snow here. And uh, this guy just did a film that tries to be an homage or a ripoff of Barry Lyndon. So let's do a little dialogue here. And yes, Blade Runner is filled with uh, references to the to the Shining and to 2001: A Space Odyssey, the the hotel room uh, or the apartment of of Deckard. Uh, Harrison Ford is an inversion of uh, the room 237. The rear projection is very striking, and it's been used. It's clever because um, uh, Scott uses it for the replicants. You know that their eyes gleam not like human eyes, just like that leopard eye. Uh, uh, gleams in a very, very striking way because of the the, the front projection in um, in two thousand and one. So um, yeah, I mean, the, definitely Scott is one of those filmmakers. Also John Carpenter, also James Cameron, those those big, big Hollywood filmmakers who uh, who have been quoting Kubrick in that way. And there is other ways of doing that. Um, so shall I continue with the walkthrough of the chapters? Yes, I just wanted to say though that one of the things I love about the introduction and how you explain the book is you're hanging off all these other directors and films uh, off Kubrick, whom I love, and getting me excited about watching, making sure that I watch all these other films, uh, such as Birth. You know, there's a lot of films that I've heard about, but now I'm going to watch them because you're making the, you're giving me enough of a connection that I know it's going to pay off. I'm very happy, and indeed, it's one way to go in these films to say, "Okay, here we are in Kubrickium territory, and um, and let's let's look for the Kubrickium here, and let's see how it you know how it played out. Let's see what it yielded." And Jonathan Glazer is uh, is definitely uh, one of the most striking um, Kubrickian uh, heirs or epigones, and and his uh, his film Birth is lovely, absolutely lovely. It's it's got also things from Buñuel, you will see, but. Uh, there's direct quotes from there's like pff, 
I don't know, there's at least seven direct quotes from, from Kubrick in there. So it's, it's like a game, you know, like you're going in there and you're, you're finding your pieces of the puzzle. Very, very fun way to in, engage with these films. And thank you so much for saying this, because I think that's one of the points of the book is to introduce, uh, important 21st century authors to the readers and, and through the Kubrickian, uh, keyhole or lens. You know that I loved Sean, you know, so much. Taking me this long, and I can't get him out of my system. I can't. Too many memories. I understand that this is gonna sound crazy. I've met somebody who uh, who seems to be Sean. Am I to understand that that ten-year-old boy told you he was your late husband, Sean? He said, it's me, Sean. What am I supposed to think? <laughs> He's back. What do you want? You'll be making a big mistake if you marry Joseph. There's a boy this tall who wants to marry my fiance. You're hurting me. Don't bother me again. From now on, we're going to tell the truth. What do you want to know? How did Sean meet Anna? We met at the beach. We got married 30 times in 30 days. How do you know what you know? I'm Sean. You can't go around saying you're somebody you're not. What are you doing? I'm looking at my wife. This is insane. I mean, I don't want to fall in love again with Sean. And that's what's happening. You can think whatever you want. Everybody can think what they want. I'm who I say I am. Stay away. Stay away. You ask Anna who she loves more, me or Joseph. Go ahead. Go ask her. And amusingly enough, there was a, um, a, a top uh, hundred of the best films of the last uh, two decades that came out, I think, in The Guardian. And uh, There Will Be Blood and... Um, under the Skin, so the film by Paul Thomas Anderson and by Jonathan Glazer with Scarlett Johansson, came first and second. So, uh, you know, The Guardian, of course, it, it, it's a left-wing British uh, publication. And 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 you, you can see how even there, the, the shadow or the, the ghost of Kubrick is very, very strong. Because I'm not sure that these people who did those polls were quite aware of what they were doing. But still, the films that came up first are two of the most Kubrickian movies, so two of the most post-Kubrickian movies uh, of the 21st century. So I think that says a lot about the influence of Kubrick in Great Britain. Now, the, the fourth chapter in the collection is by a colleague from France, Pierre-Simon Gutmann, uh, who is actually, um, uh, he teaches film, but he also is a, an editor for L'Avancene Cinéma, which is a, a film journal even older than Cahiers du Cinéma and Positif, and still, you know, continuously running to this day. And uh, I asked him to write about Yorgos Lantimos, the, the Greek a uh, weird wave filmmaker who is also eminently Kubrickian. And uh, I, I, I have to say, I did, uh, you know, bring certain things to, to Pierre Simon's attention. And uh, he delivered a beautiful piece on the Kubrickian elements in the killing of the sacred deer and um, the favorite particularly. And it's pretty in inescapable because when you think of the killing of the sacred deer, you think of those um, the tracking shots and uh, steady cam shots and this sort of weird family atmosphere that is both borrowing on Eyes Wide Shut and The Shining and uh, the horror uh, that is being in injected in the in this sort of mundane uh, family environment. We, we don't have to worry about nothing. 
Cause we got the fire And we're burning one hell of a something They They're gonna see us from outer space Yeah, I'm really sorry outer about Bod It's nothing serious No, it is Like we're the stars of the human race Human race Where did you two go? When the light started out They don't know what they heard Check the match, playing loud Giving love to the world How did his father die? We'll be racing A surgeon never kills a patient An anesthesiologist can kill a patient But a surgeon never can Cause we got the fire, fire, Don't be scared, Mom You'll see You won't be able to move either to get used to it. Where is she? What did you do to her? We're gonna let it burn, burn, burn. I don't understand why I should have to pay the price. Why my children should have to pay the price. It's the only thing I can think of as close to justice. We can let it up, So they can put it out, out, out. And in the favorite, it's almost like Barry Lyndon with female characters and uh, the camera movements and the wide uh, wide angle lenses from Clockwork Orange, which is very funny. It's 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 very very keen. The film is very keen on you borrowing on these and saying, "Ah, yes, I see the Kubrick here." The Queen is an extraordinary person. They're all staring, weren't they? I can tell even if I can't see. And I heard the word "fat," "fat," ah. and "ugly." No one but me would dare, and I did not. She's been stalked by tragedy. Everyone leaves me and dies. I apologize for my appearance. I hoped I might be employed here by you as something. A monster for the children to play with, perhaps. It is important to make new friends in court, is it not? You're so beautiful. Stop it. You mock me. I were a man, I would ravish you. <laughs> you have become close to Abigail. She is a viper. You're jealous. You must send Abigail away. I do not want to. Let's shoot something. Come on. <gasps> Sometimes it is hard to remember whether you have loaded the pellet or not. I do fear confusion and accidents. Row! Favor is a breeze that shifts direction all the time. Turns out I am capable of much unpleasantness. <laughs> Do not shout at me, I am the queen. And for once, act like one. <laughs> I could not just stand by and let you destroy me. You are enjoying all of this, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> if you do not go, I will start kicking you. And I will not stop. My dear friend, how good to see you've returned from hell. I'm sure you shall pass through it one day. And Lantimos, uh, well, that's, that's the more important part, perhaps, of the chapter. Gutmann explains to us how in Kubrick there's that humanistic perspective that takes the victim into account. Uh, there is there's something about being a victim being being not not discarded. But in Lantimos, it's a very harsh, it's a very sort of cinema for the neoliberal age, cinema for the cutthroat age. Um, and, and his films do not look at victims as such. You know, it, it looks at them in a much more cynical, colder way. Um, and that's, let's say, uh, Lantimos's own take on, on that cinema that Kubrick uh, produced, a cinema that can be brutal, that can be violent, 
but that still has a for strong humanistic element. And I think that for all of us, that the, the most striking uh, examples would be Paths of Glory and uh, Barry Lyndon. And in the case of uh, Lantimos, these films, you, you come out of them and there is no redemption. You know, the, the characters may not die, but there is certainly no redemption for them. And then there's also the important grotesque aspect, which is something that James Narramore has pointed out in his long and uh, establishing book on Kubrick and uh, this aesthetics of the grotesque. Well, Rodney Hill writes about at length in the Coen Brothers case and Pierre Simon writes it about in the case of uh, Yorgos Lantimos. And I was very excited to have a whole cha chapter about Lantimos because I, I also wanted to have some European filmmakers in there, not just British. So uh, we, we managed to do that. The fifth chapter is my chapter, and it's about time in Kubrick. Uh, I, I, I invite people to read it because it takes a lot of time to read. It's a, it's a long, it's a long-winged chapter, and I, I write about dimensions of time in the films of Jonathan Glazer, specifically in Under the Skin, in the temporality of drifting in, you know, permanent distraction, which has become a little bit of the the mode in the in the 21st century where you are driving or drifting on highways, uh, driving and drifting through shopping malls, driving and drifting or surfing, watching TV and being on the internet. And this is uh, very much what these strange alien characters played by Scarlett Johansson in the film is a little bit like, you know, she's sort of like this deadpan, blank, drifting being. And then, you know, she, she goes into predator mode when she, when she finds people that she wants to um, literally skin. <laughs> So you live alone? Yes. You think I'm pretty? Well, I know, gorgeous. I have a place about 30 minutes away. Come to me. When was the last time you touched someone? You don't want to wake up, do you? Uh, I also talk about Gaspar Noé, who, like I said earlier, is a very important Kubrickian uh, filmmaker because he just he became completely obsessed with 2001: A Space Odyssey, and we have a beautiful interview with him in the book where he talks about this and how this film changed his life. So that's it's major because it's a filmmaker who really, really readily and openly and uh, without any shame will talk about the importance of Kubrick in his life. And each of his films has 2001 written into it. And um, it's remarkable because it, it gives his films a sense of continuity, which is quite rare among filmmakers nowadays, and maybe ever, maybe always. Um, I write also about um, uh, Christopher Nolan, 
And I show how, uh, obviously, Interstellar being very much influenced by 2001 Space Odyssey and its special effects and its epic breadth uh, has a very different take on time. You know, if you will, I argue that in the in the Nolan movie universe, time is like a measure of sp- dimension of space. And uh, it, it doesn't make that much sense, but it can be navigated like space. And that's definitely not the case in Kubrick. So I, I show how, on the one hand, you have sort of modernist time in Kubrick, which is time as a pure dimension which is not space and in Christopher Nolan's more of a postmodern approach where where you spatialize time and you can navigate time and that's exactly what the characters do in in um, in that film and other films of his the late coop now we had a flat it's an indian surveillance drone solar cells power an entire farm what'd you do murph uh, she didn't do nothing murphy's law you're a well-educated man coop and a trained pilot. And an engineer. The world doesn't need any more engineers. We didn't run out of planes and television sets. We ran out of food. Dad, why did you need me after something that's bad? Oh, well, we didn't. Murphy's Law. Murphy's Law doesn't mean that something bad will happen. It means that whatever can happen will happen. We must confront the reality that nothing in our solar system can help us. Now you need to tell me what your plan is to save the world. We're not meant to save the world. We're meant to leave it. And this is the mission we were trained for. I've got kids, Professor. Get out there and save them. I have no idea when you're coming back. We must reach far beyond our own lifespans. We must think not as individuals, but as a species. We must confront the reality of interstellar travel. Murph, I love you forever. And then I finish with a, a film that I, I, I really adore, uh, and I didn't expect to adore, which is a Phantom Thread by Paul Thomas Anderson. Because honestly, I, I always saw the Kubrick in Anderson. I always saw the ambition in Anderson, and and I you know always thought that he was obviously an incredibly talented uh, filmmaker. But I, I never really liked any of his films. And then I saw Phantom Thread just because you know it's still a film by Paul Thomas Anderson. You're going to see it. And, and I thought it was a sublime uh, love letter to Kubrick. You can sew almost anything into the canvas of a coat. When I was a boy, I started to hide things in the linings of the garments. Things that only I knew were there. Secrets. Morning. Will you have dinner with me? Yes. I feel 
I've been looking for you for a very long time. You look beautiful. Very beautiful. I have things I want to do. Things I simply cannot do without you. Reynolds has made my dreams come true. And I have given him what he desires most in return. <laughs> Every piece of me. feel cursed that love is doomed for him i don't like the fabric maybe one day you'll change your taste maybe i like my own taste just enough to get you into trouble perhaps i'm looking for trouble stop there is an air of quiet death in this house you're not cursed you're loved by me stop playing this game what game what precisely is the nature of my game all your rules and your clothes and all this money and everything is a game. This was an ambush. Stop. Are you sent here to ruin my evening and possibly my entire life? Stop it! Whatever you do, do it carefully. has it has uh, all the important humanist aspect but at the same time sort of creepy uh, human relations in, in fleck, injected in it and and the temporality of phantom phantom thread is unassuming but it's very 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 beautifully crafted and complex and with strong echoes to Barry Lyndon to Lolita and I hope that people will enjoy reading that part of the of the chapter uh, which is at the end of my chapter because it's 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 my love letter to that film as it were. And time, of course, is an important aspect in Kubrick. And my, my central argument is that Kubrick was fascinated and obsessed with immortality and with infinite time. That's really, his films are so dense because there is that concern. And so it's one of the things that fuels uh, his films is that, that search for something that goes beyond just space, something that goes into the realm of pure time. Um, the sixth chapter is by uh, Rick Warner, and it's it's a beautiful investigation of the sense of dread that I think a lot of people have experienced watching The Shining, but that they will also experience in certain parts of Eyes Wide Shut and uh, in 2001 A Space Odyssey. You have that very specific sense of menace, uh, of impending doom, uh, of something lurking. Uh, and um, Rick Warner does a beautiful comparison between uh, you know, distinguishing the way that Kubrick and Hitchcock have played with genre and how they have designed their own ways of, of creating fear, of creating suspense. And um, yes, this Kubrickian dread, somebody had to put their a name on it. Some, somebody had to put their finger on it, and, and Rick did. And it's, it's a brilliant investigation. And he finishes a chapter with looking at other films, looking at the uh, Twin Peaks uh, revival series by David Lynch, and looking at... Um, Alex Garland's uh, Annihilation, you know, which also featured these elements of, of, of dread, that sense of, of impending doom, of, of end of the world, uh, which seems to inhabit Kubrick. And that's also because Kubrick was a product of his time. You know, he was a product of, of the, the, the Great Depression and then the Cold War and then the, the, all that angst that he certainly had that made him actually consider wanting moving to move to Australia at some point because of his fear of, of the atom bomb and, and the, the Cold War going haywire as we know from uh, 
the jocular treatment that he gave to it in uh, Dr. Strangelove, obviously. I, I heard a lecture by a photographer who said that the idea of beauty, beauty for beauty's sake, has gone out of fashion, but there's another aspect to beauty, which is its dreadful, awe-inspiring aspect. So I've always found in Kubrick a great beauty in all his films, including like Full Metal Jacket, paired with this awe and dread because it's indifferent to us humans. It's not humanistic. It's just a perception of the cold beauty of the universe. Could that be factored into this idea of Kubrickian dread or is it more of a different way? You put it in you put it in ways that I certainly couldn't, uh, and and thank you so much for doing this. But uh, Rick Warner does uh, also pick up on this idea of this something that's beyond beauty, which is the sublime, um, and he he connects the sublime to Kant and to Edmund Burke, who were um, you know important thinkers of that emotion, which is beyond beauty. When when something is beyond your your mental capabilities, your cognitive abilities and you are overwhelmed by by something and it's not beautiful anymore it's scary it's it's beyond scary it's dreadful in that sense you're you're filled with awe and dread as you just said so yes we can definitely factor that in and it applies perfectly to Kubrick and and that's what the chapter is about and if I may make one more analogy uh your black star I feel like Kubrick's films are organized around this very bright central truth, which is like a sun. But he always interposes something in front of that truth, like an eclipse. So you see the glowing around the edges, but he's never going to show you the full thing. He's just going to show you uh, the outside effects. And that, to me, is the sublime. Like You can't ever show people the exact truth. It's too much. But you can hit all around the edges. That, that's that's a brilliant analogy, um, and and I think that's exactly what is going on. That he knew far more than he let on, but he knew also that suggesting these things was more powerful than 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 showing trying to show them, which would be impossible anyway because people would not understand. Yes. So, so that's that's very much it. That's that's one of the great strengths of Kubrick, and that's. That's why Deleuze, you know, saw him also as the brain filmmaker, the cinema as brain, because you're 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 dealing with these things. Um, speaking of brain and speaking of um, of of Kubrick, uh, the seventh chapter of the book in, in engages with artificial intelligence and uh, sentience of uh, machines, and that's by the wonderful uh, scholar from Yale, Marta Figlerovich, and uh, she just um, you know she 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 brings the house down with uh, incredibly uh, thoughtful considerations about what it must be to relate to machines, but what it must be for machines to relate in the films that are uh, directly influenced by 2001 A Space Odyssey, including, of course, AI by Spielberg and, of course, Ex Machina by Alex Garland, where we have robots who are essentially artificial intelligences who are essentially the, the main agents of um, the film. And um, yes, it's, it's, it's a wonderful um, new, I think, uh, approach. It, 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 does, it does deal with a very rigorous historic, historic um, treatment and analysis of where artificial intelligence stemmed from, and it mixes it with a very, very robust um, you know, philosophical approach of what it must be to be a sentient being when you are not human. 
So um, that's uh, that's really one of the uh, the highlights of of the book, that chapter by uh, Marta Figlerovich. Now, the the eighth chapter is by Adrian Daube, a very very young and very talented professor at Stanford, uh, who specializes in a lot of things, but among certain things that he specializes in, one of them is film music. And so I asked him to write about uh, film music in Kubrick and how that's very very unforgettable. Um, inimitable in a sense, but also very often imitated uh, use of temp tracks, that is to say of music that pre-exists to the film and then is being used in the film to create this ballet-like or this choreographic compositions. Of course, we remember them perfectly from 2001, A Space Odyssey, A Clockwork Orange, uh, Barry Lyndon, The Shining, and, and also Full Metal Jacket to an extent, even though that's not classical music. Well, Adrian looks at the history of that temp track uh, phenomenon, how Kubrick wiggled his way around to not use Alex North's score for 2001 and just retain the music that he had in mind all along, the Ligeti music, the Strauss and Strauss music, and the Cacciatorian. And that was a game changer. Uh, you know, it, it definitely was one of the big revolutions in, in film music, maybe the most important one in the history of cinema so far. And a lot of filmmakers pay homage to Kubrick because whenever somebody does that, whenever somebody uses a piece of classical music as a temp track, he is channeling Kubrick. And some people do a horrible job. Some people do a very interesting job. Um, and Adrian uh, looks at filmmakers who have been doing this. He looks obviously at Lars von Trier. If you think of the opening of Melancholia, uh, he looks at Terence Malick, who is, you know, one of the most uh, well-known filmmakers who does use temp tracks for his poetic Emersonian compositions. Um, but, uh, he also looks at less famous, uh, filmmakers and, uh, there, you know, this, this tendency of, of using temp tracks, which Kubrick uh, designed, well, it has been around for a long time. And I would add here that, uh, some people do it in certain ways, which is putting the music on top of the image as some sort of veneer and some filmmakers inject it from underneath. Uh, doing their own take. And, and I, I, w I wish there was, had been a little more discussion of that, but Tarantino is a filmmaker who has a very ambivalent relationship to Kubrick. On the one hand, he clearly, like, you know, he steals from everybody and he still, he clearly st stole from Kubrick. But when we think of Tarantino, we do not think of Kubrick that much. However, if you watch his films closely, you will see that there's echoes of Kubrick in many places. For instance, you remember in Pulp Fiction when Bruce Willis shoots John Travolta in the bathroom. And then there is a tracking shot and a hand that opens the bathroom door. And that's a direct reference to the hand of Jack Nicholson opening the bathroom in The Shining with that tracking shot. And the hand on, you know, you can see the hand barely on the edge of the image pushing the door. And in the recent Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, there is a, uh, there is a jingle from the radio show, which is the very, very similar, you know, to the one of, of Halloran driving and listening to the radio when he's driving through the snow. So Tarantino does take from Kubrick, but I would say that the way that Tarantino uses film music is also pre-existing music, also temp tracks, if you will, is his own thing. And that is, I think, very remarkable is that he bypasses what, uh, Kubrick already invented. So, um, this, you know, this, this, uh, this school of temp tracking can still find new variations and, and be, uh, recreated. And, and that's, uh, really a huge contribution of Kubrick to commercial cinema. 
the ninth chapter, Pansy Duncan is a, a terrific scholar from who hails from Auckland, New Zealand. And I was lucky enough to have her as my colleague for a, a little while when I was teaching in New Zealand. And Pansy has the most exquisite way of unpacking uh, ideas and of looking at uh, film through an affect lens. She has already uh, one monograph on the question. She has another one coming out. And uh, she just deals with film and texture in a way that I think can only be said to be uh, surpassed or, or, or rivaled by uh, Jeannie Brinkema, who, who wrote a beautiful endorsement for uh, our book um, uh, after Kubrick. And Pansy tells us in a, a, the most provocative and intriguing way that it's not blood in The Shining. It's not blood gushing from that elevator. It's oil. That The, the, the Shining is a film that is in dialogue with the uh, petrol crisis of the 70s, with that anxiety of oil. And uh, she correlates the, um, the importance of oil derivative products, of petrol derivative products in so many aspects of American daily life, in uh, the lipstick and, uh, she, you know, the, the pointe or the, uh, the, 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 the climax of her piece is when she shows that when Wendy finds the gutted, uh, snow cat, it, it's, it's the machine that has had its heart removed, as it were, that, 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 you know, mechanical piece. And that sort of loops together oil, uh, material and blood. And, uh, it's a very compelling, uh, analysis of the film, which goes to show that you can interpret The Shining in countless ways. And as long as you do it rigorously, which Pansy does, you can convince people of the things that are in this film. Uh, and it's also a, it's an affect approach. So she, she takes the film as a subject and she talks about her experience of the film as it is negotiated by this uh, petrol horror, that, that, that oily, gooey, uh, blood-like substance. And of course, of course, what film is one of the most famous films to quote The Shining. Well, of course, it's a film called There Will Be Blood, which is a film about oil. Yeah. So she, she masterfully shows how this idea does not belong to her alone, how Paul Thomas Anderson must have felt that connection there and that how that blood gushing from the elevator and that oil gushing from the bowels of the earth are in essence connected because oil is murder. You know, the, the, the industry of oil, that whole incredible machine was also connected with war, was connected with brutal industries, was connected with cutthroat entrepreneurs. And it's a, uh, it's a beautiful ride. I can tell you that, you know, I don't know what that car rides on, but it definitely is a beautiful ride. And the next chapter in the book is by Danny Fairfax, who is now a professor at Goethe uh, University in Frankfurt. And Danny looks at room 237 and he looks at all the incredible ways in which people have interpreted The Shining and he definitely goes down the rabbit hole and I know that Danny is a very industrious man and he was very very busy last year and so he wrote the piece at night you know when 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 he when he had you know no other obligations when his family was asleep he told me that he would watch those videos on YouTube of those conspiracy theories of those secret codes and secret messages presumably contained in The Shining. And these things will make you doubt, you know, they will, they will put you in a, in a state of mind where you'll be like, wait a minute, wait a minute. 
he describes his own thought process as he is lured and sucked into this conspiratorial mindset and paranoid schizophrenic mindset. It's a beautiful piece of uh, investigative journalism, if you will. Uh, and, uh, and I think people will enjoy it tremendously because uh, it's also beautifully written. Chapter 11 is by uh, now State Senator John Pizzais, who uh, I have to admit is a, a friend of mine from high school, but he, he has done well for himself. Uh, he, was, he, was elected, he was elected senator in Belgium uh, last, uh, last year for the Green Party, and he is, uh, he's, well, he's a brilliant writer. He, he is a philosopher of law and a you know, bona fide uh, PhD and professor, but he also is now a politician. And he writes about politics, political opacity in Kubrick. He says, is Kubrick telling us that they're hidden things, or is Kubrick telling us that things are in plain sight for us to see, that those systems, those rules of the game are not lost on us, they are lost on some of the characters. So he looks, for instance, at Barry Lyndon, and he says, Redmond Barry, he does not comprehend the rules of the game. But these rules are not secret at all. They are the rules of the aristocracy, and these rules have been codified and, and you know, put into practice for centuries. And one of the rules is that you do not enter the game if you are not from the aristocracy. So it will just be an illusion for you. And you're never going to be accepted by this environment. So there's this glass ceiling that you will not go through, but you think you can because it's a glass ceiling. But the viewer knows that this glass ceiling cannot be pierced. And same thing with Eyes Wide Shut. You know, John argues that Eyes Wide Shut is not at all about some dark secret society conspiracy. It's just about rich people having their own little games and Tom Cruise's character stumbling upon it and being sort of uncomprehending of the game, not understanding the rules. So it's a, um, if you will, it's, it's a piece that goes against the grain of all the more conspiratorial uh, explanations of Kubrick's cinema by a politician who upholds the idea of political transparency. You know, one of John's uh, longstanding uh, commitment was working for a center of political observation and analysis and basically saying that, you know, there's no grand schemes or grand conspiracies. It's just people. And sometimes it may just look confusing, but it's just people doing things and um, stumbling and, uh, you know, sometimes doing little petty arrangements. But there is no great project that is beyond that. So that's the uh, that's a chapter that maybe some Kubrick fans will definitely not agree with. Okay. Uh, the the following chapter, I believe, is by Mircea Deatza from uh, Bucharest University, and it's a beautiful and very uh, a very nimble uh, approach of um, uh, Kubrick through cognitive science. And he basically has a um, cognitive science approach to Interstellar and 2001, and he shows us how the two films deal with the sublime and deal with the science fiction paradigm differently from a cognitive perspective. So it's like, how do, how do these films work? You know, he just takes them apart in, from that perspective. He shows that's their mechanism. That's how they work. Let's see. Let's look at how they work. Uh, it's, it's a very enjoyable introduction for some people to, to this sort of film study slash cognitive approach. The, the last few chapters, I think, uh, the, the chapter 13 is by Sung Hun Jong. Sung Hun Jong is a wonderful colleague of mine who um, uh, was at NYU Abu Dhabi now 
is teaching th the late Thomas L. Sasser seminars at Columbia as we speak. And uh, uh, he is an absolutely expert, incredible expert on film theory. Uh, his knowledge and breadth of of uh, of uh, Elsasser, of Zizek, of Agamben, of uh, obviously Lacan is uh, is astounding, and he, uh, you know, with, with disconcerting ease, talks about biopolitics in Kubrick and how we need to read Kubrick today not as an existentialist filmmaker, the way that he was interpreted, of course, by Gerald Abrams, also by some uh, earlier um, discussions of of Kubrick's work. Uh, films like Paths of Glory, which was eminently picked up as an existentialist work, uh, but also Full Metal Jacket and Dr. Strangelove. And Sung Hoon looks at them and says, we're going to now look at them. It, of course, you know, the, those earlier readings were not bad. They were totally accurate. But we now, now the time has come to look at them from a biopolitical lens, a Foucauldian lens, Michel Foucault's uh, idea of, of society as a, as a biopolitical entity. And um, yeah, it's it's a very very uh, good way to show people that Kubrick evolves because his films are never dead. They are, you know, with with time we can interpret them in new ways. And the biopolitical lens is a great one. And Sung Hoon shows us how this biopolitical lens was intuited by a lot of filmmakers who did riffs on Kubrickian ideas in the 21st century. And uh, of course, there is, uh, you know, Paul Verhoeven, Starship Troopers, and there is um, Elysium. I don't remember who the filmmaker was of that film with uh, Matt Damon, uh, District Nine. I mean, a lot of a lot of science fiction films that came out in the 21st century or just before the 21st century have that very strong biopolitical aspect to them, and it was already present in Kubrick. Like Kubrick was, you know, he thought about these things very, very, very thoroughly, and so it's already in there. It's already in Paths of Glory, and uh, and it, it now comes to the surface thanks to Sung Hoon's uh, analysis. The last two chapters of the book are no longer dealing with uh, politics so much. They are uh, leaning more towards the art history or museal aspect of things, and um, chapter 14 is by uh, Jin Hoon Kim, who is a professor in uh, in Korea at uh, Chungang University, and uh, Ji Hoon uh, talks about the Kubrick exhibition, which is of course one of the most visible and uh, eminent aspects of the legacy, because this exhibition has been touring the world uh, with uh, you know great success since two thousand and four. And I don't know if you've seen it many times, but I was lucky enough to see it in France, in Belgium, in Los Angeles, and in Seoul. And each time the setup is a little bit different. Each time the exhibit is a little bit different in terms of what it includes uh, in uh, the, the representation, which is based on the space in which it takes place. And uh, Jihoon explains that in the 21st century, we have moved into a dual mode of putting cinema into the art gallery. And one is the cinema of exhibition, and the other one is the exhibition of cinema. And Kubrick's uh, exhibition is exhibition of cinema. It's showing the works, showing the paraphernalia, showing the props, showing the pictures, showing clips of the film. And uh, the cinema of exhibition is when filmmakers actually go into the art gallery and produce things 
for the art gallery. And, you know, there's been a lot of examples now. Godard did something like that at Pompidou. Chantal Ackerman transformed some of her films into video installations. Abbas Kiarostami did. It's something that a lot of people are doing. Also, some gallery artists are going into the uh, film world, like uh, uh, Steve McQueen, who is, uh, who is an artist and a gallery artist and who did these wonderful films like uh, Hunger and uh, Shame. But in the case of Kubrick, in the case of Scorsese, in the case of Tim Burton, in the case of David Lynch, it's the exhibition of cinema. It's like showing these filmmakers and their films as part of a patrimony. Um, so it's a very, very good um, way for, for uh, um, readers to wrap their minds around the way in which cinema and museum have been interpolating. And then comes the final chapter of the book, which is by a, a very, very um, special contributor, which is by Alexander Nemiroff. And Alexander Nemiroff is a professor at Stanford of art history, uh, the Carolyn Marilyn Thomas professor of art history there. He used to be a professor at Yale. And he is not only a, a brilliant scholar and uh, unparalleled lecturer uh, and a promoter of art history at those schools, but he's also the nephew of Diane Arbus. Diane Arbus, of course, uh, was a, a huge source of influence on, on Kubrick. There is absolutely no doubt about that. Yeah, we, we all know the twins from, uh, uh, from uh, New Jersey that she photographed, which are literally you know, picked up in, in, uh, in The Shining. But there is uh, other elements of, of Diane Arbus that inhabit um, Kubrick's universe. And there is also a very strong uh, resonance for Alex Nemiroff in Barry Lyndon, which is a story of these brothers who, that ends tragically. And uh, he, he, te he tells about how the film contains in itself the drama that he himself, the tragedy that he himself experienced in his own family and uh, you know, binds it together in a, in a wonderful exploration of themes that are borrowed from literature, that uh, come from Henry James, that come from H.G. Wells, that are found in the very delicate uh, palette of tragic emotions uh, and uh, the thoughtfulness that pervades Barry Lyndon. And he also, of course, talks about Barry Lyndon from the perspective of art history, because as you know, Barry Lyndon is not only uh, replete with um, quotations of famous paintings by Constable or Turner or other uh, important British and European painters, but there's also a lot of paintings in the film. Remember in the in the, the scene where the, the concert is interrupted by Lord Bullingdon bringing the young uh, child of Redmond Berry to the party to ridicule and, uh, and berate uh, Redmond Berry. There is this, this salon in which they are is covered with paintings. And, and I think probably Alex Nemiroff is the first person to actually look carefully at these paintings, which he, in his knowledge of history of art, can recognize and tell us that they're not there at random. You know, they each have... They each have a purpose. They each talk and, and are in dialogue with what's going on in the film. So, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's just, it's, it's almost like poetry. It, we're no longer in the realm of, of uh, sheer film scholarship. We're in something different. And it's a beautiful way to close the book because it's no longer about filmmakers who quote Kubrick. It's about Kubrick inhabiting our lives. So I, I like that the, the book ends this way. And, uh, and it doesn't really actually end this way because there is an interview with Gaspar Noé at the end, which was conducted by my friend Pip Chodorov, who is a, a, a filmmaker and a, a professor at Dongguk University in Seoul. And Pip 
uh, often goes to the Cannes Film Festival and he knows Gaspar Noé because, uh, check it out, Gaspar Noé is so obsessed with 2001 that he wants to have every single poster of the movie. And so it's a very, it's a very moving thing because obviously Gaspar Noé just had gotten the, the prize for a climax and I, I don't think he had slept all night. I don't think he had slept all week. And, um, and he still delivered a most articulate and beautiful uh, interview where he talks about uh, the importance of, of 2001 in his life, which he saw first when he was in Argentina. He was still a child in Argentina and he saw the film with his parents. You know, that, that's kind of, you know, it, it sort of takes dedication, you know, to take your kid at like eight year old kid, you say, okay, let's go see uh, this movie. <laughs> uh, and and you, you have to read it because it's a great interview by, by uh, I think, the most important male a French filmmaker. I mean, there's there there are there are female filmmakers in France who are doing things that are uh, tremendous and staggering. But I, you know, not everybody's going to like it. But I'm I'm I'll stand by this. I think Gaspar Noé is the best French filmmaker uh, in activity. Uh, of course, you know, Godard is still alive. Okay, but uh, let's say like of his generation. Okay, so he, you know, that's that's my opinion, and I'm I'm very thankful to him for having uh, given us this gracious interview about uh, the influence of of 2001 in his life, and that's you know that's a perfect way to close the book because that's exactly what it is about. It's about Kubrick in our life. Well, Jeremy, uh, we have other questions, but they're all going to be anticlimactic after this incredible summary that you've given us of this book. I feel like I can't wait a year for the soft cover. I've got to get the hard cover because this is going to be just a box of chocolates that I'm going to relish every chapter. I think this book is a box of chocolate and it's a little bit like the Forrest Gump box of chocolates, but it's also like the, you know, the, the good box of Belgian chocolates because uh, uh, it, it, was, it was a treat. It, each, each chapter is a treat. So two last questions about the book itself. Uh, how did you gather such a diverse group of people? And then could you just tell us a little bit about your editor who was so helpful? Yes. Uh, I'm very happy to do that. Um, so first of all, because of my uh, my life path, I, I've been in many places, and uh, it's not always been easy. But uh, uh, I can tell you that it's certainly made my life richer, and and I'm, I'm extremely lucky to know a lot of tremendous uh, people, and I was uh, lucky to be able to bring them together on this project. The interesting thing about After Kubrick is that it's not a typical Kubrick studies book. There is only a couple real uh, hardcore. Uh, you know, tried and true Kubrick scholars in the book, and that's Nathan Abrams and Rodney Hill, who have published tremendous scholarship on Kubrick. Everybody else, everybody else was not a, um, you know, like full-blown Kubrick scholar. And there's a very simple reason for that. Uh, one of them is that I myself was not a Kubrick uh, scholar before embarking on this book. And so I said, let's make a, a book about Kubrick from uh, fascinating perspectives by people who can write beautifully and who have a relationship with Kubrick, but who are not in that sort of network, which is the Kubrick uh, Scholars Network, which is a, a network of, of amazing people. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, I think of, of one of my great revelations uh, in working in this uh, book was to read all these amazing uh, books and, and chapters by these people who I then met in Leiden, last summer. So that's, uh, that's the backstory. But you still had to include at least some people. And, and I, I reached out to Rodney, and I reached out to Nathan, because I thought that they would bring 
you know, essential parts to the edifice, but also because uh, I, I thought that they were complementing the book from that perspective. Um, so I've been just very lucky with a lot of, lot of, uh, a lot of very generous people saying yes. That's that's basically what it was. Um, now the the editor is uh, my 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 um, wonderful um, com- commissions editor at Bloomsbury is Katie Galloff, and um, I want to give her a big shout out because Katie is incredibly uh, personable and uh, efficient and generous. And we did uh, a couple of books together. We did The Global Auteur together. We did On Women's Films together. But I would say that they were easier sells. You know, The Global Auteur, I mean, just the title alone is kind of, a, you know, it's kind of like an appealing, uh, broad uh, appeal film studies book. On Women's Films, I did with Yvonne Margulies, who is one of the top uh, film scholars of her generation. And we had uh, uh, contributors of the ilk of Laura Mulvey on this book. So you understand that it, it was it was also an easier sell, but after Kubrick was not an easy sell because it didn't have that Kubrick network of scholars, so it didn't have that sort of le- uh, legitimacy, and I certainly do not have uh, any legitimacy, or at least I didn't have any legitimacy until now to write about Kubrick, and I have to say that the uh, blind peer reviews for the book were half and half. You know, it was like. That would say like like two two people wrote that yes this is exciting this is fresh this is new nothing like this has been done before should be done and two were like scathing they were like who's this dude who writes about Russian film uh, he doesn't quote my scholarship and 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 Katie could have you know Katie could have used that Katie could have used that she could have said no look you know we we don't have a consensus here sorry you know find another publisher uh, but she took a chance. And uh, and I have to say, you know, big big kudos to her because um, without her, it would have been may- maybe the project would not have uh, been made, or maybe it would still be in the works. Uh, so um, I, I owe her a lot on this one, and I, I think I think we're all pleased with the way it turned out. I think uh, you know, including the cover, which is a just very handsome, beautiful cover. So everything ab- about the process turned out well. So I, I have to say thank you, Katie. To me, to me, Kubrick was a revelation. Uh, to me, Kubrick was probably uh, at one and the same time a blessing and a curse. But I think that um, you know, any blessing, any revelation of that magnitude come comes with its accursed share. And I think that the uh, blessing aspect was stronger than the curse uh, aspect. But I certainly erred for a long time trying to be a filmmaker, and that's probably his fault. So I, so I, I wasted a bit of my life, uh, you know, uh, erring on the wrong side of the the tracks, if you will. Um, but yeah, yeah, I would say I'd say that that's pretty fair. Yes, Kubrick is a revelation, and he is not in equal parts a blessing. That's he's definitely a blessing to all cinephiles and a curse because it comes with its toll. You know, like becoming a Kubrick fan becomes a, a burden sometimes. Okay, very cool stuff. Hey, big thanks to Jeremy for taking the time to speak with us. His new book, 
After Kubrick, A Filmmaker's Legacy from Bloomsbury Publishing is available now on Amazon and many other booksellers. We've got some great new episodes coming your way very soon, including a very special surprise show for our members at the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society on Facebook, an insider's look at working on Full Metal Jacket with a man who was there, Adrian Bush, and for the 21st anniversary of Kubrick's passing, one which will feature a fond look back at the reactions shared by many first-generation internet users at that time, in, of course, the pre-social media age of chat rooms and message boards. I'd like to thank our producer, Stephen Rigg, researcher and contributor, James Marinaccio, and, of course, our friend, Mark Lentz, for conducting this interview. We're going to leave you now with David Bowie's Girl Loves Me from his 25th and final studio album, Black Star, released on Bowie's 69th birthday, January 8th, 2016. We've chosen this one because, apart from Bowie's well-known admiration of Kubrick, this song particularly shows the influence that A Clockwork Orange had on this once-in-a-lifetime artist of extraordinary gifts. Rest in peace, Starman. Gina's old sound so titty up this Malchek say Party up moods, Nanty Vela set round on Tuesday Real bad dizzy snatch making all the homies mad Thursday Pop a blind to the poly in the hole by Friday
until next time, it's your host and humble narrator, Jason Furlong, saying, hey, let's meet up at the Corova Milk Bar sometime and toast to Stanley with a glass of, I mean, a cup of tea. Thanks for listening. See ya. It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. Thank you for listening to the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Come back soon. This show comes to you from the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society.